Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. I'm Brad Constantine, and this discussion is going to be on 2 Nephi, Chapter 1. So we finished 1 Nephi, and now we're into 2 Nephi. My question for you to think about during this lesson is, why are there two books of Nephi? Why is there a 1st and a 2nd Nephi? Is it because uh, one is so big, uh, or that would have been so big if they'd have been combined? Uh, that's can't say that because Alma's pretty big. So be thinking about why you think it's possible that they broke it into two sections, 1st and 2nd Nephi. So we'll talk about that at the end of the lesson. So 2 Nephi, uh, besides testifying of Christ, uh, also includes the following doctrines, the scattering and gathering of Israel, the great apostasy, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the church, the last days, and the destruction of the wicked at the second coming, the plan of salvation, and the redeeming power of Jesus Christ's atonement, the resurrection of all mankind, and Nephi teaches how obedience to the doctrine of Christ leads to uh, eternal life. So um, anyway, be thinking about why they have, uh, why we have split up first and second Nephi instead of just leaving it all the book of Nephi. So chapter one, verse one. Now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of teaching my brethren, our father Lehi also spake many things unto them and rehearsed unto them how great things the Lord had done for them in bringing them out of the land of Jerusalem. And he spake unto them concerning their rebellions upon the waters and the mercies of God in, in sparing their lives, that they were not swallowed up in the sea. And he also spake unto them concerning the land of promise, which they had obtained, how merciful the Lord had been in warning us that we should flee out of the land of Jerusalem. But for behold, said he, I have seen a vision in which I know that Jerusalem is destroyed. So 2 Kings chapter 25 talks about this, and it's sometime around or after 588 BC. And had we remained in Jerusalem, we should also have perished. Verse 5, but said he, notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise, a land which is choice above all other lands, a land which the Lord God hath covenanted with me, should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Orson Pratt said, uh, the difference Portions of the earth have been pointed out by the Almighty from time to time to his children as their everlasting inheritance. For instance, Abraham and his posterity that were worthy were promised Palestine, Moab, and Ammon. The children of righteous Lot were promised a portion not far from the boundaries of the twelve tribes. Uh, the meek among the Jaredites, together with a remnant of the tribe of Joseph, were promised the great western continent. In the resurrection, the meek of all ages and nations will be restored to that portion of the earth previously promised to them. And thus, all the different portions of the earth have been and will be disposed of to the lawful heirs. Uh, continuing verse 5, Yea, the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever, and also all those who should be led out of their other countries by the hand of the Lord. The Americas, both north and south, are from Manasseh and Ephraim. At the April Conference of the Church held in Nauvoo in 1844, the Prophet Joseph Smith declared that the whole of America was Zion. Verse 6, Wherefore I, Lehi, prophesy according to the workings of the Spirit which is in me, 
that there shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. Now, a lot of people wonder if this, uh, this sentence here, this scripture means that uh, everybody that's brought by the hand of the Lord, or that everybody that comes into the country is brought by the hand of the Lord. Let me just read you this quote here from uh, Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Mormon. It says, it would be hard to suppose that this statement applies to each individual that has come from the old world to the new. It apparently refers to groups, not individuals. We know that the Jaredites, the Nephites, and the Mulekites were all brought to this land by the hand of the Lord, notwithstanding the fact that some of their number were unworthy of an inheritance in this promised land. More recent history affords pilgrims and Puritans as illustrations. Of such the Lord approved in the collective sense, but certainly not in the individual sense in all cases. The context of this phrase seems to sustain that conclusion. The preceding verse speaks of those led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. The verse that follows states that the land was consecrated to those the Lord would bring. This does not appear to be inclusive. Rather, it suggests a, se a selection or choosing on the Lord's part as to those who will be his covenant people. Verse 7, Wherefore, this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. God is aware of their coming. And if it so be, notice that this is a, if it so be, kind of a conditional prophecy here. There are two kinds of prophecies, conditional and unconditional. If it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be because of iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes. But, for, but unto the righteous it shall be blessed forever. Elder Marky Peterson said, We Americans must learn that our nation can continue to exist only as it aligns itself with the powers of heaven. If we turn our back upon the Almighty, even by ignoring him, we jeopardize our national future. If we deliberately oppose his purposes, we place ourselves in danger of destruction. These stern facts have been taught to Americans from the beginning of our national history, starting with our first president, George Washington. He realized and he publicly announced that we obtained our independence through an act of providence, since we were far too weak to gain it by ourselves. Knowing this, he warned that if we were also to survive that if we were to survive as a free and independent nation, we must obey the Almighty God who brought us into being. Abraham Lincoln, another inspired president, said virtually the same thing, warning that if we fail to obey the commandments of God, we shall go down to ruin. It is no imaginary ruin that faces our nation if we reject Jesus Christ, as Lincoln pointed out so dramatically, and it is possible that our greatness can be buried in profound obscurity if we refuse to turn to God. Those desiring the protection of heaven must clothe themselves in the robes of righteousness. Where they are, the protecting hand of the Lord will also be there. Verse 8, And behold, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. For behold, many nations would overrun the land, that there would be no place for an inheritance. Had the knowledge of the Americas been made known even a century earlier, the religion transplanted to the Western world would have been that of the Church of Europe at its lowest stage of decadence. Verse 9, Wherefore I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land, and they shall be kept from all other nations, that they may possess this land unto themselves. And if it so be that they shall keep his commandments, they shall be blessed upon the face of the land, and there shall be none to molest them, nor to take away the land of their inheritance, and they shall dwell safely forever. The land has both a blessing and a curse. Verse 10, but behold, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief, it doesn't say if, it says when. The Lord knew it was going to happen. 
after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord, having a knowledge of the creation of the earth and all men, knowing the great and marvelous works of the Lord from the creation of the world, having power given them to do all things by faith, having all the commandments from the beginning, and having been brought by his infinite goodness into this precious land of promise, behold, I say, if the day shall come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer, and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. And also there's a, a statement in Genesis uh, that talks about the same thing, that uh, by keeping the commandments, we'll have the blessings of the Lord. Uh, verse 11, yea, he will, bring an other, he will bring other nations unto them, and he will give unto them power, and he will take away from them the lands of their possessions, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten. Yea, as one generation passeth to another, there shall be bloodsheds and great visitations among them. Wherefore, my sons, I would that ye would remember, yea, I would that ye would hearken unto my words. Oh, that ye would awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound. In other words, bad habits. Marvin J. Ashton said, Who among us hasn't felt the chains of bad habits? These habits may have impeded our progress, may have made us forget who we are, may have destroyed our self-image, may have put our family life in jeopardy, and may have, may have hindered our ability to serve our fellow men and our God. So many of us tend to say, this is the way I am, I can't change. Lehi warned his sons to shake off the chains because he knew that chains restrict our mobility, growth, and happiness. They cause us to become confused and less able to be guided by God's Spirit. Samuel Johnson wisely shared, the chains of habit are too small to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. Living a life of righteousness is a chain breaker. Many of us today are shackled by the restrictive chains of poor habits. We are bound by inferior self-images created by misconduct and indifference. We are chained by an unwillingness to change for the better. Shaking off restrictive chains requires action. It requires commitment, self-discipline, and work. Chains weigh heavily on troubled hearts and souls. They relegate us to lives of no purpose or light. They cause us to become confused and lose the spirit. These chains cannot be broken by those who live in lust and self-deceit. They can only be broken by people who are willing to change. We must face up to the hard reality of life that damaging chains are broken only by people of courage and commitment who are willing to struggle and weather the pain. To change or break some of our chains, even in a small way, means to give up some behavior of habits that have been very important to us in the past. Even if our present way of life is painful and self-destructive, some of us become comfortable with it. Those who are committed to imp improvement break chains by having the courage to try. Uh, and continuing verse 13, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the everlasting gulf of misery and woe. Some foolishly try and justify conduct that they know is wrong with it's such, is such, I'm sorry, it's such a little sin it won't matter. While it may be true that the particular conduct is not at the top of the scale, the more dangerous part is the road that it puts you on. Little wrongs just seem to, to have a way of leading into bigger wrongs. The words of the American clergyman Henry Emerson Fosdick provide further instruction here. He said, the tragic evils of our life are so commonly unintentional. We did not start out for that poor, cheap goal. That aim was not in our minds at all. Look at the road you are walking on. He who picks up one end of a stick picks up the other. He who chooses the beginning of a road chooses the place it leads to. Robert J. Matthews said, As defined by Alma, the chains of hell are the limitations people place upon themselves because of unbelief. 
As a result of unbelief, the greater manifestations of the Spirit and the greater gifts of spiritual knowledge are withheld, which leaves individuals unsaved and unaware of eternal things. Alma says that in such a state, people are led by the devil down to destruction. Such unbelievers are actually in a spiritual deep freeze and are in danger of freezing to death, but don't even know that they are cold. Unless they are awakened and aroused and made to exercise, they will die spiritually. The devil slips his chains around them so subtly and carefully that he snares and binds them almost before they realize it. Uh, down to verse 14. Awake and arise from the dust and hear the words of a trembling parent whose limbs ye must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave from whence no traveler can return. A few more days and I go the way of all the earth. But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. His calling and election had been made sure. I have beheld his glory and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. Hugh Nibley said, to be redeemed is to be atoned. From this it should be clear that what kind of oneness is meant by the atonement or at one moment. It is being received in a close embrace of the prodigal son, expressing not only forgiveness, but oneness of heart and mind that amounts to identity, like a literal family identity, as John sets it forth so vividly in chapters 14 through 17 of his gospel. This is the imagery of the atonement, the embrace. The Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. Just what we read here. Verse 16, And I desire that ye should remember to observe the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. Behold, this hath been the anxiety of my soul from the beginning. My heart hath been weighed down with sorrow from time to time, for I have feared, lest the hardness of your hearts, the Lord your God, should come out in the fullness of his wrath upon you, that ye be cut off and destroyed forever, or that a cursing should come upon you for the space of many generations, and ye are visited by sword and by famine, and are hated and are led according to the will and captivity of the devil. O my sons, that these things might not come upon you, but that ye might be a choice and a favored people of the Lord. For behold, this will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. And he hath said that inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. Those who are obedient will prosper both spiritually and temporally in the land. 21. And now, my, and now that my soul might have joy in you, and that my heart might leave this world with gladness because of you, that I might not be brought down with grief and sorrow to the grave, arise from the dust, my sons, and be men, men of Christ. And be determined in one mind and in one heart. Be a Zion people, united in all things. Salvation consists of our learning to think as Christ thinks, believe as he believes, feel as he feels, and do as he would do. Thus, in Paul's language, we obtain the mind of Christ, for as the Lord said to those of our dispensation, if ye are not one, ye are not mine. That's from Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Mormon. Continuing verse 21, that ye may not come down into captivity that ye may not be cursed with a sore cursing, and also that ye may not incur the displeasure of a just God upon you, that the destruction, yea, the eternal destruction of both soul and body. This expression does not have reference to the annihilation of the body and spirit of the wicked. Such an interpretation would contradict many passages of Scripture, the better part of which have spoken by Nephi prophets. The Book of Mormon is most emphatic that the resurrection is universal and that it consists of the inseparable union of body and spirit. The body and soul could properly be thought of as having been destroyed in the sense that they come forth in some resurrection other than the first or celestial resurrection. Such was Lehi's meaning in this instance. That's from Brother McConkie and Millet. 
verse, uh, verse 23, Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness, shake off the chains with which ye are bound, and come forth out of obscurity, and arise from the dust. Rebel no more against your brother, whose views have been glorious, and who hath kept the commandments from the time that we left Jerusalem, and who hath been an instrument in the hands of God in bringing us forth into the land of promise. For were it not for him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. He's talking there about the time when the, the bow broke, and, and uh, he was the one that was that kind of kept a level head about things. Nevertheless, ye sought to take away his life, yea, and he hath suffered much sorrow because of you. 25. And I exceedingly fear and tremble because of you, lest he shall suffer again. For behold, ye have accused him that he sought power and authority over you. But I know that he hath not sought for power nor authority over you, but he hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. And ye have murmured because he hath been plain unto you. Ye say that he hath used sharpness. Ye say that he hath been angry with you. But behold, his sharpness was the sharpness of the power of the word of God, which was in him. And that which ye call anger was the truth, according to that which is in God, which he could not restrain, manifesting boldly concerning your iniquities. Nephi's boldness and clarity leave Laman and Lemuel without excuse that they didn't know. They have been given every opportunity to return to God. 27. And it must needs be that the power of God must be with him, even unto his commanding you that ye must obey. But behold, it was not he, but it was the Spirit of the Lord which was in him, which opened his mouth to utterance that he could not shut it. And now my son Laman, and also Lemuel and Sam, and also my sons who are the sons of Ishmael, behold, if ye will hearken unto the voice of Nephi, ye shall not perish. And if ye will hearken unto him, I leave unto you a blessing, yea, even my first blessing. But if ye will not hearken unto him, I take away my first blessing, yea, even my blessing, and it shall rest upon him. The blessing and birthright were traditionally given to the oldest son under the patriarchal order. This practice was modified at times in particular situations. A patriarch could bless his offspring by calling upon the powers of heaven. As he gave the birthright blessing to one of his sons, for instance, the keys and powers of the priesthood were extended to the next generation. In the patriarchal order, under the law of primogeniture, these priesthood rights normally were to be given to the eldest son. That was from Brother Ludlow in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. The, uh, Brother McConkie said, Lineage alone does not guarantee the receipt of whatever birthright privileges may be involved in particular cases. Worthiness, ability, and other requisites are also involved. Jacob prevailed over his older brother Esau because Esau despised his birthright. The Lord placed Ephraim, the younger, before Manasseh to fulfill his own purposes, and Nephi, Jr., in point of birth to Laman and Lemuel, was made a ruler and a teacher over them, a circumstance that became the cause of much contention for many generations. Verse 30, And now, Zoram, I speak unto you, Behold, thou art the servant of Laban. Nevertheless, thou hast been brought out of the land of Jerusalem, and I know that thou art a true friend unto my son Nephi forever. Wherefore, because thou hast been faithful, thy seed shall be blessed with his seed, that they dwell in prosperity long upon the face of this land, and nothing, save it shall be iniquity among them, shall harm or disturb their prosperity upon the face of this land forever. Wherefore, if ye shall keep the commandments of the Lord, the Lord hath con consecrated this land for the security of thy seed with the seed of my son. So this is showing here, as this last verse of this chapter, that Zoram is an example of how one can inherit covenant blessings through faithfulness. Now, I asked you at the beginning, what's the difference between 1st and 2nd Nephi? And uh, just kind of as a summary, that 2nd Nephi is mostly all doctrine, whereas 1st Nephi is a lot of history. There's only one chapter in 2nd Nephi that actually deals with any history, and that's 2nd Nephi chapter 5. So that's my opinion, anyway, that of the differences between 1st and 2nd Nephi. 1st Nephi is mostly history. 
and some doctrine, whereas Second Nephi is almost all doctrine with just a very brief amount of history. I know that these things are true, that the gospel is true, that the Book of Mormon is true, and I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you like this, you can subscribe and be sure to leave comments. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.